11 verses of chapter 3 as Paul revealed different sins. In fact, there were 11 uh, different sins that he revealed that are part of our old sinful nature. He mentioned sins in verses 5 through 10 like sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed and anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language and lies. Uh, These are sins that every Christian, when they decide to come to Christ, every follower of Christ must bury and leave behind. They're part of our old sinful nature. But we saw last week the problem is those old sins of the old sinful nature, uh, they don't seem to realize they're dead, do they? And they like to crawl out of the grave every single day and grab us by the shirt tail and pull us back in to those old ways that we used to live in. So Paul warns us to to stand firm in our faith and put these sins to death every single day. We spent some time last week near the end of the message looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 in particular. Let's put those back on the screen and let's read those together. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. That's good. Thank you for all five of you that did that with me. Now, all together, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so we talked about last week how Paul was urging us to think about the things that Jesus thinks about, with our hearts to prioritize the things that Jesus prioritizes. And so it's it's just so critical that we don't ask questions when it comes to church about what do I want to get out of this or what do I want or what are my preferences. It's so important as we put Christ first, ask what does He want? What, What does He desire? What are His priorities? What will bring Him pleasure? What will bring Him honor? What will bring Him glory? These are questions that are so important for you and me to ask at church. And these questions are equally important for you and me to ask at work, at school, and at home. So today's message, as we finish chapter 3, I'm calling this New Threads for Home and Work. Amen? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, I thank you so much for inspiring Paul 2,000 years ago to pen these words for the Christians in Colossae and the Christians next door in the city of Laodicea. And Lord, we know that your word here wasn't just for them. Your word is for us today in 2018 right here in this place. Open our minds and hearts to what you want to teach us. And I pray, O God, that I would be, and that all of us would be, teachable today. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Let's dive in to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Say amen if you're there. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, 
hymns and spiritual psalms in your hearts to God with gratitude. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's stop there for now. Verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. And remember as good Bible students what we do when we come across that word, therefore. We ask the question, what is the therefore? So let's ask the question, folks. What is the therefore? Therefore, I am so glad that you asked. So why did he say therefore? Well, he's saying therefore because of what he has just finished saying in in the first part of chapter 3. Now, remember in the first uh, 11 verses of chapter 3, Paul was making it clear that there are these 11 sensual and social sins that are part of the old nature that we have crucified, that we've put in the grave, that don't belong in our lives any longer. But remember what else Paul did in verses 9 and 10. He used this beautiful analogy. He he, he focused on the grave, but then he shifts to this other analogy, which we talked about last week, this analogy of changing clothes, putting off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes. And so what he was talking about there in the early part of chapter 3 is that as followers of Christ, uh, we have been spiritually raised from the dead. Amen? And we saw last week that this whole putting off and putting on uh, reminds us of Lazarus a bit. Lazarus came out of the grave after being dead for four days, and and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes out of that tomb. And remember what uh, one of Lazarus' sisters had just finished saying, Jesus, he's been in there four days, by now he stinketh. Well, sure he stinketh, but Jesus raised him from the dead, and the first thing Jesus says to do when he came out of the tomb was, take off those grave clothes and let him go. In other words, he doesn't need those stinky grave clothes anymore, right? And similarly, what Jesus did in the physical with Lazarus, telling them to physically remove the physical grave clothes, he does on a much greater and grander level with you and me to take off our spiritual grave clothes, the old sin, the old nature, the old wickedness, and puts on a new Christ-like nature. Amen? So Paul described our old grave clothes really well in those first Ten verses. Now he'll describe our new grace clothes. Okay, grave clothes, leave them dead and buried. Grace clothes, put them on every day. Amen. Now some of you may say that sounds a little hokey. Grave clothes, grace clothes. Come on, Dave. Well, you know what? If it sounds hokey to you, that's too bad. Because we're talking about it today. Amen. All right. So, verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Let those words sink in for a moment. Let them sink in. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, congratulations. Congratulations. You have been chosen by God. Think about that for a moment. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, congratulations. You are holy, which means set apart from the sin of the world and set apart for the purposes of God. Congratulations. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, congratulations. You are dearly loved. You feel pretty good about that? Why don't you tell someone next to you, congratulations. Tell them, you are chosen by God. You are set apart by God. You are dearly loved by God. And you are not alone. Remember that God inspires Paul here to write not to an individual, 
but to a church. He's writing to a church. This letter was written to the Colossian church. So Paul is saying that we have been chosen by God. We have been set apart by God. We are dearly loved by God. Amen? It's nice that you're not alone in this. The person next to you, if they are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ as well, they are also loved. They are also chosen. They are also set apart. That being the case, we need to put our old flesh aside. We need to bury the old man, the old woman. We need to put aside those old grave threads, right? And put on the fresh new threads that we're given in Jesus Christ. These new threads, these new clothes have ten layers. And just as we layer our physical clothes uh, during the winter time when we're going out and it's 25 degrees outside, just as we layer our physical clothes, Paul is going to tell us in these next few verses of chapter 3, specifically verses 12 through 15, the layers of spiritual clothes that you and I need to put on every day. Because you understand that just as you go into the cold, and on a cold winter day, you need to layer your physical clothes. Every single day, regardless of what the physical temperature is outside, every single day we go into a sin-corrupted world. Amen? Every single day we go into a world filled with sin, filled with wickedness, filled with wretchedness, filled with wretchedness, filled with all the stuff that God's wrath is one day coming against. And so Paul says you've got to put on these layers of spiritual clothes every day. Let's quickly make our way through these ten layers that Paul points out starting in verse 12. Layer number one, he says, put on compassion. Put on compassion. Now, literally, the Greek word he uses here is translated this way. You ready for this? Put on Guts. Doesn't that make you feel real warm and fuzzy inside? Put on guts. Why does he say put on guts? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. This right here is the root word of my favorite Greek word in the entire New Testament. You remember my favorite Greek word? Splachnitsomai. Splachnitsomai is the word used in Luke chapter 10. And it's the word used by Jesus in Luke chapter 15 as he's telling those wonderful uh, parables of the good Samaritan that sees the man beaten up on the side of the road. The man sees the man lying half dead on the side of the road that the priest and the Levite didn't want to help. And when that Samaritan saw him, Jesus says he was splachnitsomai. He was filled with a gut wrenching compassion for this man. And then in Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal son was coming home after squandering all his dad's money on prostitutes and on alcohol, he comes home penniless and his dad looks out and sees him on the horizon coming back toward home. And Jesus says this father was filled with this splachnitsomai, this gut-wrenching compassion for his lost son who was coming home. And here Paul uses the root word splachna. Say that with me. Splachna. Don't spit on the person's head in front of you. Splachna. Literally it means guts. It refers to a gut-wrenching compassion. So what is Paul saying? As you put on your spiritual new clothes every day, first of all, you need to put on some gut-wrenching compassion. And we need that for the Christian sitting next to us that did something stupid that they knew better than to do. And the, and the reality is that Christian that messed up deserves justice. They deserve to be fully punished. But we have a Christ-like gut-wrenching compassion to not give them what is just, but give them mercy and grace 
and kindness and compassion anyway. Amen? How about that non-Christian? Sometimes we cross our arms and say they're getting what they deserve. They're getting what's coming to them. They did something stupid. Let the full justice of the law drop right squarely in their lap where it belongs. Well, there's a place for justice, but Christians are called to walk in compassion, to give those not necessarily what they deserve, but like Christ, to give us what we need. We are supposed to have a compassion for those around us. These fresh new Jesus honoring threads must contain a big helping of gut-wrenching compassion. Our hearts have to break for those who are dead in their sins and lost without Christ. And our hearts need to break for Christians who make dumb choices but are in need of grace and forgiveness. But we don't just put on compassion. There's a second layer we put on. Secondly, we put on kindness. We put on kindness. One of the most beautiful examples in all the Bible of kindness is King David. After he came to the throne, he'd been king for a few years, and he asked the question, is there not anyone left of the house of my friend Jonathan and his father Saul that I can show kindness to? And he finds out that there's a little guy named Mephibosheth who was crippled in both feet. His his, uh, caretaker had grabbed him as a baby and dropped him on the way out the door because he thought the new King David was going to kill his master's son, Mephibosheth. And so his feet were crippled. He was living out in the Joneses somewhere. And what does David say? Bring Mephibosheth to me. And for the rest of David's life, he made sure that crippled man ate at David's table. He showed kindness to him on behalf of his friend who had died. Number three, we put on humility. In Paul's day, uh, most people didn't value humbleness. Instead, they valued pride and domination. Now, we don't value those things today, do we? We don't value them in politics. We don't value them in Hollywood. We don't value them in business. No, pride and and domination, no. Well, of course we do value those things today. Humility is 180 degrees from that. It's actually a mindset. Christian humility is uh, where you don't think highly of yourself, but at the same time you don't think lowly of yourself either. So humility is not thinking highly of yourself. It's not thinking lowly of yourself. It's thinking of yourself just as God thinks of you, with sober judgment. Your view of yourself is not any higher or lower than Jesus' view of you. If you and I are humble Christians, we think first not about ourselves. We think, think first of Christ. Secondly, we think of others. And thirdly, we think of ourselves. That's joy in Christianity. Jesus, others, you. And that's humility as well. We put Jesus first. We think about Him first. We think about those around us second. And then we put ourselves third. Number four, we we don't just settle for having clothes of compassion and kindness and humility. Paul says we also need to put on gentleness. We need to put on gentleness. That's also in verse 12. This Greek word is more literally translated as meekness. And so the NIV translators use the word gentleness because it's a word that's a little bit more commonly used in our English today. But meekness and and gentleness refer to power under control. Uh, This word meekness was used in Paul's day particularly of wind and of horses that had been broken. And so you can think of a wind, if it's a gentle breeze, isn't that refreshing on a hot July day in Victorville? Sometimes the air is just so still and it's 100 degrees out and it's just sweltering. We hate it. But then God in the afternoon maybe will bring us a gentle breeze and it feels so good, doesn't it? But that same gentle breeze, if 
the velocity picks up quite a bit. And there are hurricane force winds. That breeze that once was refreshing can be devastating to an entire city. Amen? Similarly with a horse, if you have a wild stallion, that wild stallion with its weight and with its muscle mass can create a whole lot of damage if it goes on the rampage through a house or through a barn. But you take that same horse and you tame that horse and it is power under control. That's how they used the word back then. And so that's what God has called us to be as Christians. Those who have the ability to exercise our muscles and cause damage, but we choose not to. It is power constrained, power under control. We have the ability to destroy others with our words and with our actions, but instead we choose to exercise restraint for the good of others. Number five, we put on patience. This Greek word is also translated at times as the word long-suffering. Long-suffering, as you might guess from that word, means a long fuse. We saw last week that some of the sins of the sinful nature that we've buried are anger and rage. There's no place for uncontrolled anger and rage in a Christian's life. And Paul says instead of anger and rage, you need to put on patience. Instead of having a short fuse, you've buried the short fuse, you need to have a long fuse. Amen? We need long fuses. We're not to be short-tempered. We're supposed to be long-tempered. Number six, we find in verse 13, put on forbearance. This word, word literally means to hold back. When Christians around us screw up, they may deserve our judgment. They may deserve our wrath. But forbearance holds back. There are times when we need to choose someone out. Amen? There's times when we do need to choose someone out, but those times are few and far between. We need to exercise forbearance on a regular basis. Number seven, we put on forgiveness. Remember what Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then after the Lord's Prayer, he piggybacked on what he had taught us about forgiveness and said, if you do not forgive men their sins against you, then your Father in Heaven will not forgive your sins against Him. And so Jesus makes it clear that God is not going to forgive us if we are unwilling to forgive others. Ouch! That's something we have to be so careful to carry out. Christianity is nothing... Don't miss this. Christianity is nothing if it's not about forgiveness. And it never ceases to amaze me how many Christians who have been in the church for year after year after year struggle with forgiveness. And many Christians will harbor bitterness and harbor resentment against an ex-spouse or against a child who walked out on them or a parent who abused them or a boss who fired them or a neighbor who cussed them up one side and down the other. Friends, there is no room in Christianity for unforgiveness. God has called us to forgive. Unforgiveness is part of the old smelly grave clothes. Crucify and bury it and put on forgiveness in its place. Number eight, put on love. Remember, there's three words for love used in the New Testament. One is eros, which is a romantic and erotic kind of love. The other is philos or phileo, which is a brotherly kind of love. Guess which kind of love Paul uses here? Good old agape. It's a self-sacrificing, Christ-like kind of love. He says, put it on. 
It binds them all together in perfect unity. If you've got the prior seven layers of clothing on, but you don't have love, you don't have the prior seven layers of clothing on at all. Because love binds them all together. Of all the character traits that should distinguish a church and Christians within the church, love should be at the top of the list. It's wonderful to be known as a church that is friendly. I love it when people say it's such a friendly church. It's wonderful to be known as a kind church. It's wonderful to be known as an enthusiastic church. But more than anything else, Jesus said, we should be known by our love. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you love one another. Number nine, we're to put on peace. When Christ saves us, Jesus sets us free from three wars that are raging within us. First of all, Jesus sets us free from our war with God. Remember he said early in Colossians that we were enemies of God before we became saved. So we are given peace with God. Secondly, we're given peace with each other. Broken relationships can be healed in Jesus Christ. Amen? But thirdly, Jesus brings healing in the war we have with our own selves. There's a battle that rages within us. The old nature with the new nature. And before we accept Christ, the old nature always beats down any inkling of the new nature that tries to rear up its head. Oh, but the war within ourselves can be pacified through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So as we follow the Prince of Peace, we can be at peace with God, at peace with others, and even at peace with ourselves. Number ten, the tenth of the layers of clothing Paul says to put on is thankfulness. Friends, God has been so good to us, hasn't He? And it is so easy to focus on what God has not done. God didn't heal me from cancer. God didn't bring my spouse back. God didn't bring my child back. God didn't bring my landlord over to my house, have him knock on my door and say, I am so sorry I gave you that eviction notice. God didn't do that, did he? God didn't do this. God didn't do that. God didn't do the other thing. We so often will focus on what God didn't do. But let me tell you this this morning. What God has done for you far outweighs what He hasn't done for you. The good acts of kindness and love and undeserved favor that God has sent your way far outnumber the times that God did not answer what you asked Him to do. Don't forget three of the shortest verses in the New Testament. We memorized these together back in January. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, those are the ten layers of the Christian wardrobe that you and I must put on every day. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul tells us, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, you and I need to read God's Word and study God's Word and memorize God's Word and live out God's Word consistently. We also need to, according to Paul, teach and admonish each other and sing praises to God together. Amen? He says there's three kinds of songs we should sing. Psalms. Those are songs that are pulled right from the book of Psalms. There's 150 of them right in the middle of our Bibles. He says we need to sing psalms to God. Amen? Then he says hymns. One thing I love about our church is that we sing hymns. It's a wonderful thing to learn some of the old songs if you've never learned them. But don't miss, there's a third group as well. Spiritual songs. 
Remember what is said in the book of Psalms, we are to sing to God a new song. And so some Christians focus solely on the old and say, I don't want to learn any of the new. Some younger Christians say, I just want to sing the new and I don't want to learn any of the old. Paul says we need all of them, don't we? We need the old, we need the new. And our God is so awesome, he deserves a new song. We've been learning some new songs over the last few months, and some may say there's too many new songs. Well, I don't know, we can never run out of things to praise God about. A new song's a wonderful thing. And some may look at the lyrics in a hymn and say, those, those, those lyrics are too outdated, we shouldn't sing those. Why not? Those come from a, a heritage of our Christian brothers and sisters who went before us, who got inspired to write those songs at that particular time. So what a wonderful thing it is to sing to God's psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And as we sing them with fresh enthusiasm and sing them with fresh joy, and oftentimes we sing them in even a fresh way, I think that honors our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was looking at those verses last week, it kind of struck me that Paul is saying as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that we're actually teaching each other some of the pillars of our faith. And so I thought about this. This is kind of cool. God has given me the responsibility each Sunday to teach you the timeless truths of His Word through preaching. And God has given Brennan and our praise team the wonderful blessing of teaching some of the solid truths of God's Word through song. And so there's a method to the madness. We're teaching God's Word in all things. We teach God's Word through the music. We teach God's Word through the preaching. We teach God's Word through that communion meditation. Frank gave a great one today, didn't he? What was he sharing? Just some fanciful ideas from the top of his head? No. He was pointing us to the truths of God's Word. Amen? Whatever you do, verse 17, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, the Christian home, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands. Ladies, you getting excited? We had one amen. I doubt that will grow significantly over the next few minutes. But anyways, as is fitting to the Lord, husbands, love your wives. Do I get more than one amen to that one? Uh, that one's more popular. It always is. And do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you, and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So here in these nine verses, Paul turns his focus toward the home and toward the workplace. He briefly addresses six group of Christians, six groups of Christians, Wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, and slave masters. He goes through these one after another very quickly. If you want a little bit longer and more detailed teaching uh, on how these various Christian groups should behave in the, that circle they find themselves in, uh, you can go over to Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 where Paul touches on these verses in greater detail. 
So let's look at these quickly one at a time. But before I get to the first group where he talks to wives in verse 18, let me simply say this. Paul is writing to committed Christians. This is critical. When Christians get to this passage, or even when curious non-Christians get to this passage, or they get to the verse in Ephesians 5 where Paul says much the same thing, wives submit to your husbands, slaves submit to your slave masters. When we get to these verses, we oftentimes forget who he's writing to. And when someone tries to take what Paul says here and apply to a marriage between two atheists, oftentimes these instructions not only won't be helpful, they'll actually backfire. So it's important to keep in mind the context of these directives that Paul is giving. They're given to Christians in a Christian home. They're given to Christians who find themselves in the workplace. And so if we forget that, we'll find ourselves getting a little bit more hot under the collar than we should. And oftentimes we'll find that these commands actually backfire if they're not in the context of a Christian relationship. So number one, verse 18, wives submit to your husbands. Now most women absolutely hate this command. They think it's the worst. It's horrible. Raise your hand if you get really excited, ladies, about this command. It's not very natural to get excited. A few of you, but uh, I don't know. I kind of doubt it. No, Rosie, I know she gets excited about this one. There's really no reason to dislike this command. Now, women tend to hate it, and men, especially husbands, uh, tend to get a little squirmy in their seats uh, whenever the preacher starts reading this verse. Okay? And the reason a lot of men get squirmy in their seats is because, let's be honest, guys, a lot of us are scared of our wives. So some of us are a little scared of what's going to happen at home if we nod too much during this part of the sermon. But but there's really no reason to dislike this command if we understand the words submit and remember the context within which this command is given. You see, the word submit has nothing to do with male chauvinism or forced service. The Greek word used here is actually a military term that means to arrange under rank. Just because a soldier holds the rank of private doesn't mean that he is less important or less intelligent or less talented than a general over here, right? It's simply a matter of maintaining order, and our God is a God of order. So in the New Testament, submission within a marriage in no way implies that a husband is smarter than his wife. We all know women who are smarter than their husbands. It in no way means that that husband is more talented than his wife because we all know marriages where the wife is more talented than the husband. Uh, You're afraid to say amen to that as well, I can tell. Now, it doesn't even mean that the husband is necessarily a better leader than his wife because we all know marriages where the wife is frankly a more gifted and talented leader than her husband. So why on earth does God give this command? It's a matter of order. Now, for several reasons we won't get into this morning, God has selected men to be the heads of their homes. As a husband submits to Christ's leadership, a wife is called in the New Testament to submit to her husband's leadership. That's not my command. That's God's command. And if you've got an issue with it, you're more than welcome to take it up with him. Or you can talk to me afterwards and I can share some of the specifics in the Bible about why God set things up that way second command he gives is to husbands in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. Paul expands on this command in Ephesians 5. And there he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So there in Ephesians 5, as Paul is expanding on this command for husbands to love wives, he's making it clear that a husband is called to love his wife in a self-sacrificial way. He is called to sacrifice his wants and his desires for his wife, and if necessary, even lay down his life for his wife. Now that's a game changer in a marriage, don't you think? And so that's part of the context of understanding these first two commands to a wife and to a husband. This is a game changer. A man as a husband is supposed to be so self-sacrificing with his love that he puts her needs above his needs. He puts her wants above his wants. He puts her life above his life. So think about how that's a game changer in a marriage. So a Christian wife is called to submit to her husband, but a Christian husband is called to sacrifice himself every day to lay down his life for his wife. So let me ask you, ladies, would it be difficult to submit to a man who is always looking out for your best interest? Would it be difficult to submit to a man who is always putting your needs above his own needs? No, it really wouldn't. But the command to wives in verse 18 can easily backfire in a non-Christian marriage. But in a Christ-honoring Christian marriage, these commands make perfect, perfect sense. Verse 20. Teenagers, here you come. Children. I almost said teens, didn't I? I Making up words here today. If that's a bad word I'm not aware of, I apologize. I didn't mean to. Children, obey your parents in most things. You're not getting excited in the front row, I can tell. Obey your parents, teenagers, in? Oh, that's like three of you. Obey your parents in? Stand up, please. We love you. Give them a hand, church. Turn around and face your adoring families. Finish the sentence. Children, obey your parents in. Were they kind of doing this number? Children, obey your parents in. Go ahead and grab a seat. Let's give them a hand. We don't love this command too much, do we, guys? (laughs) Parents are, yeah, I like it. Oftentimes, before someone is baptized here at FCC, I'll tell them this. I'll say, now, you're wanting to give your life to Jesus Christ. I just want to let you know, I don't know all that's going to come down the pike after you get baptized, but I can guarantee you this. At some point or another, God is going to ask you to do something that you don't feel like doing. Are you going to do it anyways because Jesus said so? At some time or another, God's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do. Are you going to do it anyway because Jesus said so? And every time, yes, I'm prepared to do what I don't want to do. I'm prepared to keep him in the driver's seat. But teenagers, most of you have given your lives to Christ. I hope you understand that what is true in your relationship with Christ must also be true in your relationship with your parents. Why on earth would we say, Jesus, if you ask me to do something I don't want to do, I'm going to do it anyways because you're the boss. Why would we say that and then turn around to our parents who ask us to do something and we say no? There's a dichotomy here. There's, there's this friction that those two just do not go together. Paul makes it clear that we must obey our parents, not just when we 
feel like it, not just when they ask us to do something on a rare occasion that we actually want to do. We must obey them at all times. Let me just be honest before I move on to the next one and get you guys off the hot seat. Every day that you go to school, you're surrounded by teenagers. In your school, there's probably hundreds, for some of you, maybe even thousands of teenagers who disobey their parents on a regular basis and disrespect their parents every day of the week. But God has set you apart to be different. Just because you're surrounded by other teenagers that do not, do not care about their parents' commands, that do not care about respecting their parents, doesn't mean you can follow the crowd. God has called you to be set apart. He's called you to be different. And he calls you to submit to the leadership of your parents up until the point they ask you to do something that is directly against the word of God. And I think washing the dishes falls within the parameters of acceptable requests and commands of your parents. Be different than your friends. Be different than your classmates. And I hope that can be contagious on your campuses to demonstrate obedience and respect for your parents, something that is in very short supply in this generation. I'm running out of time. Verse 21, fathers, it's important to understand this word can also be translated generically as parents. So ladies, verse 21 is for you as well as mothers. Parents, do not embitter your children. The Greek word Paul uses here can be translated as fathers or parents. So it's moms and dads. I love how the message translates verse 21. Parents, do not embitter or don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. What a great word. As parents, we have to be so careful not to crush our kids' spirits. We have to give them boundaries, but we also have to give them space. Amen? Teenagers, you like that part? Let me say it again, because I, I think you missed it. Parents, we have to give our teenagers boundaries, but we also have to give them space. What cracks me up is Hannah's the one that clapped the loudest. She's thousands of miles from her parents because she's a foreign exchange student from South Korea. I think we can all agree your parents have given you some space, Hannah. <laughs> we have to restrict our kids' freedom, but we also have to grant them freedom. We have to teach them, but we also have to let them teach us. In the heat of an argument a dad was having with his teenage daughter, the teenage daughter was just overcome. She was trying to explain to her dad that she had something to tell him that he wasn't paying attention to. And so she finally broke down and said, Dad, you took time to have me, but you won't take time to listen to me. Ouch. I've been guilty of that as a dad many times. Sometimes we don't listen to our kids when we should be listening. And our most important job as Christian parents is to lead them to Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Colossians, shares the true story of a 20th century criminal named John H. Starkey. John H. Starkey was arrested and convicted of murdering his own wife. And he was sentenced to death for his crime. And the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, was asked to officiate Starkey's funeral. And so he stepped up at the start of the funeral and the room was filled with people who were angry and bitter and they didn't want a single good word said about this murderer Starkey. 
And so Booth was kind of between a rock and a hard place. But do you know how he began his message at Starkey's funeral? He said this, John H. Starkey never had a praying mother. Wow. And the entire room fell silent. John H. Starkey never had a praying mother. Parents, we need, number one, to be pointing our kids to Christ and praying for our kids' salvation and praying once they're saved that God will keep them from temptation and praying that they will stay true to their faith during their college and young adult years. We must be praying, parents, if our kids are not only going to begin on the straight and narrow but stay there throughout their lives. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, masters or bosses, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. In those days, real quickly, uh, most of those slaves that he was talking to were most likely indentured servants, which means because they had accumulated a large debt and could not pay off that debt, they voluntarily chose to be slaves to pay off their debt. And so it was much different than slavery was in our country 150 years ago. And what I love about God's Word, it's timeless, amen? And so catch this, before you put everything away in your Bibles, Everything you see Paul say, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 3, all the way through the first few verses of chapter 4, everything he says to slave masters applies directly to bosses and employers today. I think that's pretty cool. Everything he says to slaves in those verses applies to employees in the year 2018, right here in the Victor Valley today. Everything applies, not just a few things, all of it applies. So when you hear the word slave, think employee. When you hear the word slave master, think boss or employer. And so he makes it clear, employers, bosses, you've got to make sure you're providing your employees with what is right and fair. Employees, make sure you're obeying your earthly boss in everything, even when they're not watching you. Amen? Because ultimately, God is your boss. He says we as employees must give 100% effort regardless of whether or not our boss is watching because Jesus is always watching and he is really our ultimate boss. And in verses 22 and also in verse 25, he makes it clear that we must have a healthy fear of God as we work because he will see to it that we're punished for shoddy work but rewarded for good work. So there's chapter 3 in a nutshell. A practical teaching on taking off our old grave clothes covered in sin and putting on the fresh new threads of Jesus Christ. And we are called to wear these fresh new clothes gratefully at church and at school and at home for the glory of God. Let's make sure that every morning we suit up with those ten layers of spiritual clothing because every day we're stepping into a sinful world that so much tries to pull us back to our old ways. But we buried those old ways, amen? They're dead and buried. We've been raised in Christ to walk a brand new life in Him. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name, thanking You for the privilege of being saved in Christ. Wash us clean. Cleanse us, O God. Help us to suit up, Lord, with these layers that You've created for us to wear. Lord, to put on that splachna, that heart-wrenching compassion for those around us. Lord, to put on the love, to put on the kindness. Help us to put on the humility, Lord, and never think of ourselves more highly or more lowly than we should. Help us to put on peace and be peacemakers because we follow the Prince of Peace. 
All of those layers help us to suit up with each and every day and help us to follow you well in our churches. Help us to follow you, O God, in our workplaces. And help us to follow you well in our homes. In Jesus' name.